Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I've got a special guest here in our virtual studios, John Hellickson. John's the field CISO at Coal Fire. He's also an executive advisor, a former global CISO, and has done a whole lot of amazing things in his career, and I'm really happy to have you on the show. For those who are listening in, uh, please make sure you're subscribing to us. Uh, and feel free to get in touch with us on LinkedIn and share this broadcast with others. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I was uh, for those who want to learn a little bit more about you, go to LinkedIn, and you're like five followers short of 4,000. So we're going to imagine that's going to change as a result of this uh, particular broadcast. But you, you've attracted a lot of attention from other professionals as well, which is why you're here. And uh, we're kind of hoping that, I guess, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of where you were and where you are now and how you got here. Sure. Yeah, so I've been doing IT for about 32 years now, but I got my real start in the Air Force, uh, joined in 91, and I had a passion for computers. And I wanted to be a programmer, but I got uh, didn't pass the test well enough to be a programmer. The only one job I didn't get, but uh, I got assigned to be uh, got in the career field of computer and computer communications. And eventually, I got assigned to a base uh, off at Air Force Base, so Stratcom, uh, supporting the systems that support the nuclear war plan, the the U.S. And my initial role was actually to do automated operations on uh, the mainframe. But within a year of showing up at Offit, they decided, uh, you know, we're going to eliminate the mainframe and uh, go to all distributed systems. So I joined a team that we managed, Sun Sun Solaris, SGI Silicon Graphics, IBM AIX, and essentially dropped uh essentially started driving the uh cybersecurity element because it was mostly mostly contractors and civilian employees government employees and then a handful of us were enlisted folks so one of those folks left the organization and they were actually driving the cybersecurity elements we did some pearl scripting to manage the users on the uh, the closed network of these systems. And I took on that role and got a taste of cybersecurity and really loved it. And then eventually started managing the other aspects of security, got to deal with some tools from a Lawrence Livermore Labs perspective, one tool called SpyNet, which was very interesting and very fun to play with. And which was more like a little, you know, host-based intrusion detection with centralized monitoring and got to play with scraping logs and kind of looking for things that were interesting. But uh, eventually had to re-up in the military and decided, you know what, I want to do cybersecurity for a living, right? And if I got reassigned to another base, I could have been the base operator. Maybe I would have been uh, doing some tech support or something like that. So I didn't want to take that risk. Could have ended up being a duty driver for all you know, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... So part of that was uh, I joined First Data, I left the Air Force and joined First Data as a security engineer and spent 17 years there. Deployed their first intrusion detection, network-based, and then eventually got pulled into, I was recommending all these things we need to do on the distributed side because we had a good main, solid mainframe security side, but uh, the internet and all that stuff was fairly new at the time for First Data at the time. But 
So I started recommending all these things. Hey, when you should be doing these things. And eventually I just got pushed into, John, why don't you just take that responsibility and manage the team? So I got elevated within the peer, my peers. Uh, and uh, within the first two weeks, I had a hard lesson in management, which was we had, I got a call from the sysadmin team saying, hey, we got this rough character who's trying to do uh, tell us it's not working with us, right? And I knew this guy. He was a peer of mine, and he was rough around the edges. And and then I had a conversation with him. And then next thing you know, I was in the uh, security lab getting chewed out by this guy, right? And uh, the whole time I was thinking, it's like, man, you're this is really hard to hear, but I needed to hear it as a first-time manager. I learned a lot from that one conversation. It actually it was a pivoting moment in my career about managing people. Now, do you remember any of the details from it other than maybe just the visceral emotional response or something that could be generalized for other folks that they could learn from that? Yeah. So the, the fundamental issue was we were trying to ensure the systems that were built from the start were secure from the start, right? Hardened and everything like that. And he wasn't really working with them. He was being hard nosed, not really like finding a way to get to yes. It was more of a, you must do this and there's no ifs or ands or buts about it. Right. And they complain about not really working with him and just telling him what they had to do versus helping them along, right? And I knew this character was kind of like that. I mean, he was a great guy, but he was just rough around the edges. And the re reality was I took their side of the story, listened to it, and told him what he needs to do differently versus realizing that as a manager, my responsibility was to my people and the organization and at least understand what his side of the story was. And that's really what the probably 15 minute chew out session was, is about listening to him and getting to know why that situation came about and what the best path was forward. So, And there's some good wisdom in there, I think, for a lot of folks who are CISOs, aspiring to be CISOs, or even working their way up from the first cybersecurity position. As you said, management has a different set of responsibilities. It's not about just getting your work done and then it's five o'clock, go home. Uh, sometimes at five o'clock, that's when you get a chance to work on the stuff you want to do, because during the day, you're dealing with people and people issues and things such as that. But those are all very important parts of that job. And where you went from as a senior security engineer starting out there at First Data over a 17-year career, I think you said almost, you'd work your way all the way up to the CISO. And that's a huge accomplishment for people to say, hey, some organizations do promote from within and there's a pathway, but it was a long path. So what do you think were elements of success for that? Did you start out with that in mind or did you just kind of do your job and then they kept recognizing you're getting the job done well and well, here's another promotion, here's another promotion before you look around, you're in the corner office. Yeah, that, the latter is pretty much what it was, right? I mean, I think I'm a problem solver by nature, right? And that's probably why I love cybersecurity, right? Because there's so many things still on that need to be done and figured out. But I think the big thing was always trying to figure out how do we advance the program and represent that to others outside the program that we need to influence and drive. So I think my technical skills really helped me, but I never saw myself. I, I did tell my boss at the time, or eventually when I become started reporting to the CISO, the CSO, is that I eventually want to be a CISO, right? And then from that point forward, she started mentoring me and helping me get to that role. Probably got to that role a little faster than I anticipated in the sense of perfecting my skills from a leadership perspective, but ultimately from a political perspective, right? I didn't really understand those aspects of, you know, influencing others and trying to understand, share why our 400 person security team 
needed to spend nearly $100 million a year on cybersecurity and just security across the business. Yeah, and the politics are important, as I mentioned in a couple of prior episodes. You know, my background, I, spent, I had 30 years of misspent youth in uniform. And as a naval officer, I said, you'll, you'll promote to a certain point based on technical skills, and then you'll promote based upon proven management skills, and you'll make your next promotions based upon proven leadership skills. But at the top, to get up there to be a general or an admiral or flag officer, or as you said, like at the CISO level, it's political skills. And those are different characteristics of an individual. And I, I submit those are somewhat orthogonal. You can have an amazingly brilliant technical person who will never get to that corner office because they can't navigate the politics and things such as that. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Actually, I love that. Uh, I did listen to your podcast on that one, uh, and I thought it was a great way to, and I repeat that in several instances uh, in the way of, you know what, in order to be seen in, in the C-suite, like many CISOs that I talk to feel like they should be reporting the CEO, I think that's the biggest gap I see in the industry is the, you know, translating that technical to management to that true leadership and influencing others of why security is actually adding value to the business to that. Well, how do you really represent and think about, you know, why the business is in existence in the first place? How do you grow and maintain profitable clients, for instance? Right. That's the key theme. I think that uh, CISOs have, a, have to do better in the across the industry. Right. And so people who are looking at getting their career to the next level, I mean, you can't just walk in the door at 22 and say, I want to be in charge. Well, you can if you start your own business. And for those who recognize that there's sort of a progression of skill sets, what should people early on in their cybersecurity career concentrate on? And then as they get more and more senior, more experience, how does that investment of your time and energy toward gaining new capabilities shift and from what and to what? Yeah. So, I mean, starting out, I always, I mean, especially if you're starting out as a junior person in security, right? I've seen successful folks come from other parts of the business and lead the security program, right? But if you're starting out uh, and say, you know what, I want a career in cybersecurity and start out there, I think the security certifications, uh, getting those skill sets and being very curious about what's out there and how to solve problems, I think is the number one thing. If you're a problem solver, I think security is a great place to be. And, and there's some great companies out there or uh, firms out there that actually teach you the cybersecurity skills and not necessarily just focus on a four-year degree, right? So I think the combination of education, skill sets, and learning those skills and growing throughout and not being just stuck in one part of the career, uh, you know, area of cybersecurity, like expanding into, okay, I'm going to get into more of the host-based elements versus the network-based elements, and then getting into more of solving those problems that are a little bit more enterprise-wide that needs more architecture design, right? And then you get to that point of, I think, from a management standpoint is recognizing that it's, it's about the art of influence, right? You're trying to get a lot more done than you can do or your team can do themselves. And you're influencing others to buy into the strategy and the things that need to be done from a security standpoint, not only from a technical and here how we protect the business, but fundamentally shifting that. How do I help the business do their job while baking in security from the start, right? Like getting to yes, when they're trying to implement something, how do we actually make sure the security is baked in versus just saying, hey, here's the rules of the road and 
that's it. It's like, how do you enable the business and, and the other part parties that you're working with in the business to help them achieve not only their goals of maybe growing revenue or implementing new systems to drive revenue or, or whatnot, but fundamentally, how do you actually make, help them see the light of why the security is key, a key part in that, the journey that they're on as well. Right. And, and I think it really comes down to business alignment. Are you able there to empower the organization? Uh, does your security team understand that they're kind of in the business of revenue protection? That is to say, if you do security correctly, then you don't have unexpected losses through cybercrime, compromises, ransomware, et cetera, things such as that. But it goes a little bit more than just the hygiene factors, doesn't it? It's not just, oh, you better have security or else. It's, it's more than just a seatbelt, which doesn't make your car go faster, or give you better gas mileage, but you better have it. But how do you explain to others how security really enables their business to be more successful? Yeah, uh, so, so I think there's, there's many different ways I could go with that, uh, that question, right? But I think stepping back and understanding, and, and, and actually, to be honest, I kind of repeat this many times to one of your prior podcast too with Alan Alford, which I highly recommend. It's the three elements of, okay, how do we improve maturity? How do we reduce risk? And how do we align to the business, right? And demonstrate that we're providing business value in that perspective. The, when, when, I, when I step back, and I'll take an example from when I was at First Data, we went through many evolutions of our corporate structure, our enterprise security structure of how do we support a business unit, right? How do we get into more of an enterprise shared services function? How do we get into a global function? But fundamentally, one thing that we settled on was more of a services-based model where we started looking at the, well, who are our customers internally from a security standpoint? And by looking at that audience, like let's say the application development side of the house, we had a scenario to where we had an integration team that were developers in the organization, and that entire team was being let go. And I made the plea to say, let's pull that team into our security function and let them actually take charge and lead the cybersecurity elements of implementing security in the, the software development lifecycle. And, and part of why I bring that up as something that actually enables the businesses, we, we took it, a look at all our services and said, how do we help make sure that we can relate to the business needs on that, how whatever the function we are providing, so application security development, have somebody who can speak that language interpret the security requirements that we needed and enable them to drive their outcomes that they needed while they're baking in security from the, uh, from the start as well. So we did that across the entire organization just as a starting point to across the entire security organization to just get the point of let's focus on who our customer is internally and understand how to get security improved across the enterprise from a maturity standpoint with, uh, while at the same time reducing risk and uh, enabling our business partners, basically. You know, from a, a management and leadership perspective, a thought occurred to me as you're telling me that story. Did, were these people informed that their jobs were going away and then security came in as a saving throw? Or was this just behind closed doors management discussing and you were able to convince them to do it? And therefore, the people didn't realize that they were saved from the chopping block. You know, I think there was the, the leader of the time I, th I made, I think I made a, shared prior to say, hey, we, we could use you on our security team, right? And then I made the plea over to my boss at the time, say, hey, we need to pull this whole team over. So I would say at least the the person that was leading that function knew, but I'm not sure if the rest of the team understood 
uh, outside of their boss, maybe sharing whatever they shared prior to us trying to acquire that team. That made sense. Yeah, and it's interesting because we, we look in the news today and we see what we consider to be heavy growth industries. Cybersecurity is one of them. But uh, even Elon Musk talking about, hey, I'm going to have to do a 10% cutback, even though we're making more vehicles than ever. And then that's got some people looking around going like, um, uh, we didn't think that would happen. And so from a cybersecurity perspective, a lot of people get into the career. Uh, they find out it's very satisfying if you're into problem solving, as you said. And as I like to tell people, GMARC's law, half of what you know about security will be obsolete in 18 months. So you're dedicate to constant learning, which is where the certs come in and things such as that. But do you foresee any time in the near future where we might have a serious contraction in our industry or are we still kind of blue skies and ever upward? Oh, that's a good question. And again, there's no right or wrong answer because we're trying to predict the future and that's not really a good idea. If we could do that, we'd be on Wall Street. So we can't. We know that. But what we're trying to do is come up with a better way to, to think about it. And it's a little bit like contingency planning, isn't it? Where we think about things that we don't think will happen, but we walk through that scenario just in case it does so we don't get caught like a deer in the headlights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, I mean, my, most of my career at First Data was dealing with cost management, right? We were always cutting I was actually part of the, one of the business units, actually, that we sometimes didn't make our bonus because that side of the business was constraining. And we were always going through cuts. And uh, I probably went through seven layoffs in a period of 10 years of that process, uh, you know, going through and, and having to adapt to that model and seeing good friends have to leave because of the challenges the business had on that, at least that one industry that we were tied to. But what I would say to that is that Part of the security program, you know, we're always trying to elevate and identify risks and improve the security because we always feel like we're behind, right? But there's always an element, I think, from a efficiency standpoint of identifying, you know, where can we reduce costs? Where can we actually automate and, and get more efficient? And uh, for instance, uh, I mean, an interesting story. I had a, a little bit off tangent here, but we had this whole process excellence team we call them the Bobs, came in to analyze the entire business and say, where can we cut costs? Where can we possibly reduce headcount? That was the primary goal and improve efficiencies, right? And one of the things I did was warmed up to this team, say, hey, you know what? From a security standpoint, I'm open to anything we could do to be more efficient as a security program, right? I mean, we were a large team uh, for the organization and I'm open to that, but I want you to also consider any efficiencies you have. I want to know about that, but we have all this unaddressed work that, that goes back to cyber hygiene and stuff like that too. So what I said, here's my unaddressed work. Uh, by the time you get done with this and finding efficiencies, I want to see, can you guesstimate how much you're going to help me address this unaddressed work? Knowing the goal of the, of the program was to reduce headcount. And I knew that I was already understaffed from a security standpoint regardless. So uh, eventually, I kind of also, in the end, she came. Uh, that team came back and said, here's all the things that we've saved. And, and if security did these things, they could reduce their costs. But we recognize they need to address these other things. So my team was probably one of the few teams that did not have to do any headcount cuts. And in fact, I even hired that person to be my chief of staff eventually when I became the CSO. And uh, she was probably one of my best hires because she had a perspective of the business and how we do security 
in a different way that actually can represent and relate to the business more so than us, you know, a lot of uh, security folks who came up through the technical ranks and try to, you know, learn how to relate to the business in the way we grew up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting. So it's uh, it's in flux, and I think the advice to people would be in their careers is know know your job, and continually be learning and growing. And it would help to have some enlightened management who can articulate the business value being provided by the security team. That it's not just a cost center. It's not, hey, we need to save money. We'll get cheaper toilet paper, and we'll cut headcount in cybersecurity. I have to understand that it's a little bit like saying, yeah, we'll reduce our safety checks on our aircraft and that'll improve our profitability. And the very short term, perhaps, but long term, of course, it's a recipe for disaster. And so that's for people to understand that. And I think in your role in the, uh, as a leader, articulating that value is very, very important and it helps people out. So that was great. Uh, have you found in your years as CISO, I'm about nine years since I guess you were first anointed as a global chief security officer, and of course, have been in charge of a lot of security before that. Has this role evolved over time? And if so, in what ways? Oh, yes. I mean, absolutely. I think uh, I miss those days, to be honest, that security seemed simple, right? You know, starting in the 90s and in the early 2000s, it just felt like security was manageable, right? And now you have so much out there. I mean, I even think about just the the latest uh, uh proposals around, you know, having security members on the board and the SEC requirements reporting and stuff like that. I think security just continues to expand, right? And from a, uh, from a leadership standpoint, it's hard to keep up. I mean, that's actually, a, a, it's one of the toughest roles I've, at least from my experience, it was a very tough role to be in to get your hands around and feel like you're making progress and, and, and adding value without, uh, the threat landscape over overcoming and passing you up, right? So I always felt like we were behind where in my past life on cybersecurity. But I think overall the driving additional value in representing how security is enabling the business in various fashions, not just protecting the company, not getting ensuring we pass the client compliance check mark, but how are we actually tied to the revenue growth and how do we ensure that we're maintaining that resiliency when things are critical from a revenue generation standpoint and how security is so critical as part of that process? Uh, but, uh, but I'm not sure if I answered your question initially completely there. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's helpful just to kind of be thinking about these things and just try to explore that. Because, again, there's probably no exact right answer because I think the CISA role has evolved, obviously, in more complexity. It has been elevated, I think, three, four years ago. If you got a couple minutes with your board a year, you probably would congratulate yourself. And today you're probably front and center at almost every board meeting as there's a lot of concern about cybersecurity. And so the world events have really kind of pushed us a lot more front and center. And from that perspective, then, for those of us who are doing CISO work, we're focused on our own enterprise and that's our domain and we're trying to go ahead and, and protect it and, and grow our people as much as we can, you're in a position where you're actually doing something a little bit different. You're as a field CISO, and uh, you started that out just about the beginning of the pandemic. How's that for timing? I'm not sure whether deliberate or just uh, coincidence, but tell me a little bit about what's a field CISO and, and what are you doing there? Yeah, so a field CISO is essentially someone who's been in the seat of the CISO, and what we do is 
go out and have conversations. We tag along with some sometimes with our sales folks or our delivery team to see how our client's journey is going uh, from improving their security posture, right? So it's essentially one of providing non-paid advice, maybe coaching and mentoring uh, as part of the process, but really trying to make sure that, you know, as a security service provider that we understand and really focus on what the client needs are and the the CISO needs are to make sure we're interpreting that and identifying the right solution for that, right? So it's really just trying to make sure we're like interpreters of, you know, the other person who were are in that seat to make sure we're taking care of them, right? So it's, from my perspective, I we built a similar role in my last, uh, where I was prior to this, and I looked at it as like, you know, that's the most perfect world, world uh, role out there because the stress, the work-life balance is perfect enough to where there's very little stress involved in not having to have all this, you know, I refer to when I was a CISO, the exception debt, right? All these things that the business is trying to do, and I know we just couldn't stay ahead of that stuff. So I always had these exceptions coming in to try to manage the risk, but none of that kind of comes with this role. I'm not really in a management role, not in a like people manager role, but part of the executive leadership team to help drive and make sure we're providing value to our clients. Is, is that a bit of a letdown or is that uh, sort of a bit of a relief or how do you, how do you go from kind of being in almost like combat duty, so to speak, as a CISO where you're on the front lines to being able to pretty much uh, be a little bit more strategic with the way you invest your time and your energy? Yeah, it's, I would say it's a relief at first, right? I mean, it's the, if, if I look at this as like, I was at First Data for a long time, right? I saw a lot of change. I had many different roles, right? But I saw a lot of just first data, right, in the financial services industry. In this role, I get to see a lot of different things of how folks are trying to solve the challenging problems out there from a security standpoint. And to be honest, I feel like this is like a stepping stone or at least a point in many other CISOs future to where it's like, you know what, take on a role like this for two, three years, right, and kind of get to see a lot of other implementations out there and ways to solve problems and you'll be that much better when you take the next CISO role. So from this perspective, I'm enjoying it as much as I can because I look at this as a, a way to try to contribute while also learning more about the things I couldn't learn when I was stuck at one company, if that makes sense. It does. And uh, a thought for you then is you're doing that role and it's giving you an opportunity to help out others in their leadership position and security, help their organizations you also spend time as an advisory board member with the Security Advisor Alliance. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Do these align well with what you're doing now? Are they kind of mutually uh, development? Uh, what's Security Advisor Alliance doing? And uh, how could, for example, our listeners benefit from that? Yeah, so the great thing about this uh, Security Advisor Alliance is it's a it's a nonprofit that it's oriented towards driving interest in cybersecurity at the youngest levels, right? So we have these converged tours teaching cybersecurity and getting students in the K through 12 environment excited about cybersecurity. So trying to grow that next generation, uh, as well as uh, we have other parts of the mission too, to kind of help nonprofits, you know, help provide security and help each other from a CISO community standpoint to enable their businesses from a security standpoint. So uh, we have a leadership summit, Generally, every year we have these converged tours, but the whole point is to try to drive collaboration and the next generation of cybersecurity professionals out there. 
Yeah, I think the outreach that we're making, uh, it's starting early. I mean, K through 8 and K through 12 to identify people. And the importance there is that culturally, they'll look back 20, 30 years when we were doing security, it was mostly white males. And today we have a diverse workforce and, of course, a, a diversity of kids growing up that we're trying to attract and retain them into the cybersecurity profession. And so I don't know the reasons. I mean, there's a lot of speculation as to why it re had remained relatively monolithic all those years ago. But today, I think those barriers to entry should be mostly gone. Are you seeing that in your experience that we've gone to the point where really a meritocracy now, where you're recognized for your skill set and your willingness to work and cooperate with your team, or we still have a way to go? I still feel we have a, a way to go, right? I mean, I think, especially what we see from the Security Advisor Alliance, we just had a, actually, maybe it was last week or the week before that, we just all got together in St. Louis and talked about some of this, these the challenges of how we kind of expand our capabilities and get the word out there. But one of the elements we talked about was diversity, right? And and the, some of the challenges in understanding some of those challenges that you have in different communities, they may not be as easy. They may have interest, but how do we overcome some of those challenges that they may be facing and kind of sit in their seat to a certain degree, right? Uh, to try to make sure that we're helping to overcome that from a security advisor alliance. But I see this across the industry in the sense of, uh, you know, there's a lot of talent out there. And some of my best talent, actually, outside the diversity side, was just people who didn't even have a security background, but they look at things differently, right? I think that's the value. It's just having folks have different perspective of solving problems. And security is a great place for uh, that type of, you know, inquisitive mind to help find different ways to solve those problems. And I think that type of diversity, which is apolitical, which is bringing in people with different perspectives, different viewpoints, different approaches towards solving problems, is really, really important for organizations. And as a result, as you had mentioned, some people come from different areas. You look back in World War II, for example, and they're looking for cryptanalysts. And one of the places that they looked for at Bletchley Park, as they said, they look for women who are A, not married, but B, like to do crossword puzzles. And also people who are do good at crypto tended to be people who are good at music. And if you think about it, being able to assimilate these patterns and put them together, it, it sort of makes sense and it has worked out. And so what we're finding then is that there's types of people that they may not have started out in a security career simply because it wasn't available to them or they didn't know about it or they just didn't feel welcome, but now they can. So we're adding people all the time kind of as a lateral insert in their life. They're not starting out at saying, hey, when I grow up, I want to be a, a CISO as, as a kid at his fifth birthday party or something like that. But as we bring people in laterally into their career in their 20s, 30s, and even 40s, um, is there any advice that you might offer for somebody who is stepping in and looks around a little bit and sees some people with a little more, sometimes a lot more experience, but they may in fact be younger at that point should they be uncomfortable or should they say, no, I got a, I got a spot and here's how I'm going to do it? Yeah, I think more, more the latter there, right? So especially if you have, I mean, I, I think the more I see and work with our customers that from here, from Coal Fire's perspective, more I see a lot of folks trying to embrace different ideas, right? It's like, to be honest, I feel like a lot of times we've built our security programs based off just replace implementing new technology, right? But that's not the answer anymore, right? 
And I think uh, as this uh, as we see the, the industry mature more and the security leaders kind of represent, understand that, hey, I have to solve problems, many of these different problems, and I need these different perspectives, right? Having an open, uh, somebody with open mind about, uh, you know what, you don't necessarily need a certification or you don't need, necessarily need a four-year degree to possibly jump in uh, into the security space, right? Bring that value that your, your perspective, your, your expertise, and apply that in a way that just essentially you said, uh, maybe helps enable security to be a little bit more efficient, maybe helps security look at a problem in a different way and come to a different conclusion on how to solve that or reduce risk. Uh, so, so I think depending on the leader out there, I think there's a lot of openness to folks with experience in different parts of the business or different parts of uh, you know their career, back, their background to enable them leverage that skill set to basically take a different approach to the way we traditionally solve some security problems. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that too, because as, as leaders, part of our responsibility is goes beyond just pure management. Management, you get to deliver on the requirements, operate within budget, achieve your objectives, and get a little check in the box. As a leader, it's more into motivating and inspiring people, setting visions where it needs to be set, and being able to get your team to go through the difficult times when there may not be any individual sense of, well, this is going to succeed, but that's the leader out there making things happen. So there's a special trust that we have in the leadership roles, particularly when it comes to people who are being welcomed into it, because I think there's some fragility there. Anytime you move out of a comfortable environment into a new environment, there's a little bit of excitement and usually excitement's greater the younger you are, but as you get older, if you have dependence and obligations, it's a little bit scarier. Uh, what type of reassurance do you offer folks to say, hey, it's going to be all right? Let's assume that they're doing a good job and they're learning, but like any new opportunity, there's a learning curve. And after a little while, that exuberance, that excitement kind of dies down. And then the reality of, whoa, this is a lot bigger than I thought it was, sets in. But you got to get people through that trough of disillusionment, if you will, back into a steady state production. How do you, how do you deal with that? And how do you recommend folks think about that from a leadership perspective? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, well, we have this great program here at Coal Fire when new, new hires get on board, right? And we call it the first friend, right? And so everybody that gets hired has a first friend. And I think that's one of the things from a leadership standpoint, which is great about here, is that you assign somebody who's actually there to help uh, take care of that, help them through that onboarding process, help them understand all the things that we're trying to drive from a, a company perspective and help them along the way if there's questions or they, they can just have somebody to you know, ask questions or guide them through anything, right? So I, I look at that as a, from a career perspective as well, right? Help them make sure we understand the skill sets that folks need in order to be successful in the role they're performing, right? And a lot of times I think a lot of security leaders out there really focus and concentrate on getting security training. It's one of the harder things probably to budget and maintain in, in the if you're going through budget cutting exercises throughout the year. So I always encourage folks to say, hey, use that training up front because that's less likely you're going to get cut at the front of the year, right? But but encourage folks to actually get that uh, uh, cybersecurity training because most leaders are enabling their team to have at least one or two conferences to go to or some local security uh briefings that are going on, but encourage uh, basically folks to understand that their leader wants to take and be, see them be successful, right? And have the right skills to drive 
uh, and be comfortable in doing what they're doing. And that's what's the benefit of, I think, the consulting world. I learned about, what, six years ago, I joined the dark side is what I call it. But the consulting world does as well because generally you're hiring junior consultants and they're learning from the more senior consultants on how to do things and get more comfortable in the way of conducting interviews, understanding what what we're looking for from a framework perspective. So I think kind of taking those things from a consulting world to apply into the own into uh, you know the corporate environment of how do you enable the next you know the the folks who jump into the security space to be successful and get those skills that make them more confident over time. And you'd mentioned skills and conferences and education and certs. For someone who's aspiring to a leadership role in cybersecurity, what would what would you recommend beyond RSA, if you will? I mean, security conferences are absolutely valuable and we have to maintain our technical edge. But what other types of exposure would you recommend for people to Im- gain and improve skills in the management and then ultimately in the leadership realm? Right. So w- first thing I would say is, Try to invest in a uh, you know a coach, executive coach. I've I've had the luxury of having executive coach in a few of my different places in the recent past, and and that's invaluable uh, from my perspective from being a senior leader, right? Because most senior leaders out there have executive coaches, right? So that's one thing, right? I I also think of uh, you know attending more things, uh, you know, like there's the Avanta summits, for instance, uh, that kick off like CISO executive summits, and they also have a CIO one, right? So attending some of those ones that are more geared towards other C-suite members and understand the perspective of what they're trying to, uh, how they're trying to advance their careers and advance that function in the corporate environment. I also look at those other things like, I mean, I like the Gartner Security Conference for one, because I think they talk a little bit more about risk, things that feel like it's closer to the business, uh, the way the business thinks in terms of risk, right? So so I think there's a uh, quite a few different ways to tackle becoming, you know, building that business acumen, becoming, uh, a, being able to represent security from a business enablement standpoint, other than those things that are traditionally seen as more the technical elements of security that that a lot of our team members generally would go to as well. Well, that's good insight. So as we're getting close to wrapping up our show, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. We've looked about your role as a CISO, how you kind of got started in your career, starting with the Air Force. Thank you for your service. And you actually as well. You, yeah. Is it, uh, it's, it, time goes fast. Yes. And the importance of business alignment, uh, ideas of getting your career to the next level, and even the interesting things about being a field CISO and those unique opportunities that you have to share to help other people achieve success. Any last thoughts that you have that's kind of free form that you'd like to, to leave our listeners with that you might you know, pass on a little bit of wisdom or advice yourself so you can you get to be an executive coach now? Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, when I joined the dark side, the, the consulting side of the house where I get to experience or get to work with sales folks, I kind of have a different perspective of how hard their job is as well, right? So I see a lot of things on faith. I mean, I used, I was guilty of this as well, right? I get inundated now that I have the field seat. So title, when I change that on LinkedIn, I get inundated with sales requests. I get calls and sometimes I'll answer those. And, and I have explained that, Hey, I, I, I'm not just deciding what technologies or solutions to provide at Coalfire, for instance. Right. But I would say as an industry, not only looking at how we help 
you know, the next generation of getting into the cybersecurity space, but also how do we help coach and educate and uplift those who chose a career to enable us as uh, security leaders, but they have a different path of trying to sell something to us. And I think just having a little bit more applying that coaching aspect to how they could be better at, you know, maybe I have no interest in it, but you know what, the way you approach that or sent me this email, it's like, do you really think I'm going to respond after the sixth email you send when I never responded in the first place? You know, kind of maybe consider that as a way to also expand your knowledge in, or expand, expand your, uh, you know, coaching and mentoring to others who are trying to support the security industry, even though they don't directly practice security, if that makes sense. It does. So I'd like to thank you uh, for your insights, for your wisdom, for your time. This has been great. John Hellickson, the field CISO for Coal Fire, has been our guest today. And I think this is one of a rather interesting episodes for somebody who's been in the trenches and kind of risen above the trenches and is continuing to add value across the career field. This is CISO Tradecraft. This is G. Mark Hardy, your host. Thank you very much for listening. As always, please follow us and share our broadcast with others and friends. Let them know where you got your insights and give us a like if you can. This is G. Mark Hardy for CISO Tradecraft. Until next time, stay safe.